In particular this morning, I'd like to talk about the purpose of grace. What is it? Why, why do we have grace? What is this kindness? What is it meant to achieve? And really the setting behind it is, is something which tells us so much about God. And I'd like just for us to turn to three passages now. And just to, just to read these passages just slowly and thoughtfully and just let them sink in of what it is telling us about God. Okay? So here's the first one. The first one is 1 Timothy chapter 2. So 1 Timothy 2, and just reading from verse 1 for the context, I exhort therefore, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Verse 3, so 1 Timothy 2 verse 3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. So God our Saviour desires that all men would be saved and that all would come to a knowledge of the truth. Turn to the next one now in James chapter 5. James chapter 5 and verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman, so it's likening God here to a farmer or someone who owns a vineyard. Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it. He's extremely patient in his farm, waiting for it to bear fruit until... He received the early and latter rain. Be also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. So here the picture is of this farmer as he as he waits patiently for all the fruit to be born out of his out of his vineyard. It's talking about the coming of the Lord. Um, perhaps a, an allusion here to the coming of Christ. And perhaps it's saying that here is. The picture is God and he's, and he's waiting for every last person to be saved before the coming of the Lord. Our final one is in 2 Peter in chapter 3.
2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, Having just had those verses sinking, what does it tell you about God? What's your summary of those verses? Key emphasis being your summary, not mine. He's very long-suffering. Yep. He wants us in his kingdom. He wants us in his kingdom. Yep. There was someone else. He wants everyone to be saved. He wants everybody to be saved. Yep. Anyone got anything to add to that? He doesn't mind how long it takes. Yeah, excellent. Doesn't mind how long it takes. Very good observation. Anything else? Oh, I can't think of anything else, so that's fine. Um, it's very simple, isn't it? Just reading just three of those passages tells us a lot about God. It tells us that he is really wanting to save as many people as he can. That is who he is. He wants to save everybody if he can. Anybody who will come to repentance. And so grace, the purpose of grace, is this exact thing. It's God's desire to save and it's the means by which he is, he is doing that. So, so sometimes when you're looking at these things and you start a study like grace or anything, you look at the first couple of instances of the word or the example and you find them to be significant. And all we're going to do this morning is we're going to just see this, these three verses, if you like, seen in two stories. That these two stories are the first they, they contain the first three times the word grace appears in Scripture. But they will teach us so much that, about what God is trying to do with you and with me. And first is in Genesis chapter 6. These are unlikely stories. If 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 you'd have if I'd have said to you, can can someone tell me, um, you know, an amazing story about grace in Scripture? You know, I just cannot picture anyone putting out their hand saying, "Oh, what about where God wiped out almost the entire population?" But so so these are unlikely stories. But you've got to ask the question is. Why are they recorded the way they are recorded and the details that are given? Let's look at it through God's eyes and see what it's trying to tell us. And, and when we get to the end of these stories, and, and I've given Mike a closing hymn, which I think we're closing with, you'll see that the, the person who wrote the hymn summarises these stories beautifully as to what it means to us. 
But here we have, what's the context of Genesis 6? What's happened here? So we've got God, he's, he's, we're, only, we're only five chapters into, into Scripture. We've had the perfect world created. We've had the fall of man. And now we've only got a few pages into the Bible and it's all turned to custom, basically. Like, look at what it says. Um, chapter 6 and verse 5, that God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented Yahweh that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. It pained him. That's what it means. It pained him. He experienced pain because of, because of what his, his creation had become. It grieved him at his heart. And he said, and Yahweh said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. Now, this is a very, very significant verse. Think about what, this, what the, lead, the verses leading up to it have said. Where are we? Well, well, God's looked at everything that's happened. Man's completely gone away from him, and he's decided, if you like, this is what the, the, in verse 7 it said, that he's going to destroy man and beast and every creeping thing. Except that there's this thing called grace. And he's and Noah has found it in the eyes of God. So how does that change the story of Noah, the story of Genesis 6 and the following chapters? Well, this would be a story of God out of a population. Does anyone have an estimated population at the time here? Anyone got any ideas? A million? Anyone? Anyone got a raise on a million? Even on that? Look, it's a, it's a possibility that it's actually quite a similar population to what we have today. Um, there's some quite some interesting. Sorry, I'm getting really hot. Is there a heater up there? <laughs> Is this the UK? Yes. <laughs> it, could, it could be about six billion. If you're interested in, in knowing um, more about that, you can come and speak to me afterwards. There's some interesting calculations you can do based around the lifespan of each individual and the fact that for the, the whole period of this time, there wasn't actually many people dying, which makes a big difference, but they're obviously producing children, perhaps at the same rate. And therefore, the, the, the population increase is quite phenomenal. So we're talking about an extremely large population, whether it's 1 or 2 million or 20 million or 6 billion. It's a large number. And here we've got God deciding that out of that amount of people, there's one man. There's one man that he can work with, one man that he can save, one man that he can lead to repentance. And so what does he do? Well, he, he designs a boat for him to build that will take how many years? 
120 years? I don't know if that's right, sorry, but I'll, I'll take you for it. I think it's 120. I was going to say 100, but it's a long time, isn't it? 120 years building a boat, calling animals two by two um, into that ark, taking Noah and his family into the ark. Then there's the, the upheaval on the world as the waters comes down, the water breaks up, the, the, um, the water's covering all the land. This, this whole story, all so that God could save that one man and his family. And do you see how significant that is? That this is actually a story of grace, but it's, it's telling us the lengths that God is prepared to go to to save his children. That's what it's telling us. It's not a story of devastation. It's the story of the lengths that God is going to to save you and me and how he's working with us. So when we see it through God's eyes, it's quite incredible what it tells us. Let's come to the next occurrence, which is in Genesis chapter 18. And this is, Genesis 18 is the encounter with Abraham and the angels. You remember as they came come to him in chapter 18 to talk to him about the fact that they're going down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're interested, the second occurrence is in verse 3 when Abraham talks to them. But the significant part is the story that follows and the discussion that, that happens first of all with Abraham and then the situation in Sodom and Gomorrah as they go down to retrieve Lot. Now, has anyone ever thought in Genesis 18 when Abraham talks to the angel of God as to how they could have this discussion? Remember, they come to him in verse 26. Well, well, we'll start from verse 23. Abraham drew near and said, Will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Here we are in Genesis 18. Why would Abraham ask that question? What story does he know about that's happened where he could question God about destroying the righteous with the wicked? Well, my personal belief is that he's drawing on the story of Noah. And because of God's experience and, and, the, and what he did with Noah... Abraham has complete faith in God's character. And let's just see how this story plays out. He asks him, peradventure, if there's 50 righteous within the city, wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous therein? Uh, and in verse 26, Yahweh says, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all, all the place for their sakes. So if there was 50 in that city, God wouldn't have destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That's, and that's Abraham knowing what God was like, knowing his character. And then he says, well, what if there's just five less? Will you destroy? He says, I won't destroy. What about if there was 40? 
What about if there was 30? What about if there was 20? This is, he's having this discussion with the angel of Yahweh, Abraham. What about if there was just 10 people in it? He says, I wouldn't destroy it. Isn't that incredible? So here's the faith of Abraham in that he believes in God's character. He knows who he is. He's able to draw on what he knows about God from the story of Noah and the flood and question God about what he's doing here. But of course, we know the story. There isn't 10 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the angels go down. And let's just look at this story, incredible story of grace. So they go down into Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says in chapter 19, in verse 4, Sorry, we'll just chapter 19 and verse 1. There came two angels to Sodom at evening. So here's, here's, the, here's the, um, the setting. As the angels come down to Sodom, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face towards the ground. But of course, they are there to take him out, take him out of Sodom. And it says in verse 12 that the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides, son-in-law, sons, daughters, whatever you have in this city, bring them out of this place. So a similar situation, Noah and his family, Lot and his family, whoever he could, uh, he was going to take out of this place. The angels would spare them. Verse 13, for we will destroy this place because the cry of them is great before the face of Yahweh and Yahweh hath sent us to destroy it. So you can imagine, imagine Lot in this situation as he finds out that this place is to be destroyed. And, and there's this wonderful offer here from the angels that if he were to get any of his family, any of his friends into this room, then they would all be saved. So imagine what that would be like for you, racing around, trying to get people to say, look, look, you've just got to come. The angels have said that we'll be Taken away, they'll save us. Just come. And that's what Lot does. Verse 14, he went out and he spake unto his sons-in-laws, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for Yahweh will destroy the city. But he seemed as, as one that mocked. And when the morning arose, so all night, all night, they're waiting. And Lot's going here, going there, trying to, trying to get people together. They've waited all night. And in the morning, the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take your wife. Just, just take your wife and your two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. So they've waited all night. Still no one there. Still Lot dithering about. <coughs> and it says in verse 16, And while he lingered, they're still waiting. So we've gone through all night now as they wait for him to get people together. They're saying, well, just take now your wife and two daughters. And he's still fluffing about while he lingered. Then look at what happens. The men laid hold upon his hand, grabs Lot by the hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters. Look at what it says. 
Yahweh being merciful unto him. And they brought them forth and set him without the city. So you know what God did to save Lot and his family? He actually grabbed them by the hand and, if you like, dragged them out of the city. He'd waited all night and and still he lingered. And in the end, the angel grabbed him and his wife and his daughters by the hand and dragged them out of the city and set them out of the city. And still that wasn't enough. In verse 17 it says, And it came to pass, when they brought them forth abroad, and he said, Escape for your life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. To say, okay, we've got you out of the city now, Lot. So just run to the hills, run. Get out of here now. Verse 18, Lot said unto them, Oh, not so, my Lord. You can just like just start pulling your hair out at this point, wouldn't you? That's probably what happened to me. Oh, not so, my Lord. So they've been dragged out of the city and still he's sitting there. Now he says, well, not so, my Lord. And look at what Lot says. Behold now, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. Can you believe that? <laughs> it's about to be fire and brimstone rain down on Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels have waited all night. Eventually they have to drag them out of the city. And Lot says, oh, I don't want to go up into the mountains, lest something bad happen to me. Well, here is God trying to save Lot and his family. And Lot's worried about some evil that might happen to them in the mountain. Here's his suggestion. Because Sodom and Gomorrah was like a group of small villages and cities, right? Here's his suggestion. Behold now, there's this city that's near to flee unto. And it's just a little city. It's just a little one. Let me escape to it, one of this, just these little cities, and my soul shall live. And you know what? You know what the angel says to him? Okay. I won't destroy that city of Sodom and Gomorrah because you're too scared, Lot, to go up into the mountain. Because you don't believe that I'm going to protect you. And so that's, that little city was saved, Zor, so that Lot could go and stay there for that night. You know what the ironic thing is about the story? Is what, what, was, what happened to Lot in Zor? Well, it says in verse 30, that Lot went up out of Zor and dwelt in the mountain. Oh, there's a surprise. 
He went to the mountain, for he feared to dwell in Zor, and he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. His life come under threat in Zor, so he fled from Zor to the mountain. And, of course, the angel would have known that. God knows that. God knew it wouldn't be safe for him in Zor. So how incredibly kind is a God that is not only willing to save, but willing to hear that, hear that cry, willing to deal with our faithlessness, <laughs> willing to accommodate those ridiculous fears that we have. What an incredible God we have. And how much is this story telling us about his desire to save? So, what is the purpose of grace? We won't turn there because we're going to get to it in our further studies. The kind, Romans 2 says that the kindness and forbearance of God is meant to lead us to repentance. And I challenge any one of us, when we see this kind of kindness, this kind of love, this kind of mercy, for us not to feel compelled towards repentance. And that's the purpose of grace, to show this undeserved kindness, which God is first showing to us, so that we can be overwhelmed by it. Here is a father, here is a God who's prepared to take us by the hand if necessary and to drag us, excuse the expression, but almost kicking and screaming into his kingdom. He's going to do whatever it takes, however long it takes, to get us into the kingdom. That's what these stories are telling us. And this love, and we're going to see this kindness, will be powerful and a motivating force in our life to lead us to repentance. It will cause us to respond to God. We can't, you can't help but feel a response to a God who's willing to go to these lengths to save us. So hopefully we'll remember those two stories. You may remember the first three quotes about, about how God has this incredible desire to save. But I hope you don't forget those stories. The story of Noah and of Lot and how God will do whatever it takes to save us.